Well, good morning and welcome to our Bible teaching session. As you can see, we're meeting under rather different circumstances than we normally do. But I hope you're safe and well and ready to listen to God speaking to you through his word. If we want to keep ourselves spiritually healthy, then the first requirement is to be spiritually well nourished. And that comes through feeding on God's word. That's why we're continuing with our regular teaching programme on these Sunday mornings. Now, let's read a number of short passages together from John's chapters 18 and 19. We'll start in chapter 18, verse 12, just after Jesus has been arrested. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Down to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And down to verse 38. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, or the word means insurrectionist. Or rebel. And now into chapter 19, reading first verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. And verse 12, finally. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. In our series on John's Gospel, we have been following the four journeys which the Lord Jesus made to several feasts of the Lord in Jerusalem. 
These are pictures of that grander journey which the Lord Jesus made from his Father in heaven down into this world of humanity. He came to tell people that there is another world to which we are called. He came to call people to live for that other world. He came into this world to give people the life of that other world, eternal life, through believing in Jesus Christ. And how was the Lord Jesus received? Well, many did believe in him, and they received the life of that other world. They received eternal life. But this week and next week, we will see how the ruling establishment responded to Jesus. Today we are looking at how the Jewish religious establishment responded to Jesus. And next week we will see how the secular Roman ruling establishment treated Jesus. In both cases, the confrontation takes place in what we would call the courts of justice. Both the Jews and the Romans prided themselves in their system of justice. So what happens when the Son of God allows himself to stand before the highest courts on our planet? Will he be judged fairly? Are human beings capable of judging God fairly based purely on factual evidence? Can we recognise who he really is based on examining carefully the evidence of what he said and what he did? Sadly, we will see how Christ exposed various forms of fundamental corruption in human judgment. These studies will be very relevant for us today. We all have an inner sense of justice. We like to think that we are fair, that we judge people fairly. But when it comes to evaluating Jesus Christ, are we able to evaluate the claims of Jesus impartially? Many people have an inner bias which distorts their judgment, particularly when it comes to responding to Jesus Christ. There can be fundamental prejudices in our own thinking which make it difficult for us to respond fairly to Christ. Some people refuse to recognise Jesus as the Son of God, not because of lack of evidence, but because of some inner personal bias and prejudice. And as you listen this morning, you may want to examine your own reactions and your own judgment as though Jesus was standing before you this morning. There are two unique features of John's record of the trial of Jesus by the religious authorities. The first is that John focuses particularly on the Jewish leaders rather than the common people. There were several groups making up this ruling elite which John mentions. There is the high priest Caiaphas and his powerful father-in-law Annas. Then John talks about the chief priests or the senior priests. And then John mentions the officers of the Jews, those officials who carried out uh, the desires and the commands of the priestly caste. John refers to the combination of these groups collectively as the Jews, not the general population, but the ruling establishment. And in these two chapters, I counted no less than 26 references to these groups. So that is one key focus of John's account. These rulers were the decision makers. And in some ways, they represent our own personal decision making process, that part of our mind and will that actually makes decisions. 
So this story may reveal something of how fair our own decision-making is, particularly when it comes to responding to the person of Jesus. And the second feature in John's record is the timing of these events. It all happened at Passover. Four times John reminds us that the crucifixion of Jesus coincided with the Passover feast. That is going to be very significant, as we'll see later. So let us first look at how the Jewish religious system of justice treated Jesus. We can trace three stages in the decline and fall of the Jewish authorities as they tried to have Jesus convicted. The first stage was that the Jews had very strict legal proceedings to ensure that trials were carried out fairly and to ensure that justice was done. We can see them departing from that. In the case of Jesus, they broke nearly every rule in their own book of justice. Apart from using physical violence on Jesus when his hands were tied, they failed even to spell out the charges against the Lord Jesus and failed to come up with any evidence to support the charges. We read how that when they came to Pilate demanding the death penalty, Pilate asked them what the charge was. They simply said, This man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. It was only at the end that they were forced finally to bring up their actual charge, which was this. He has made himself the son of God. This is a very revealing accusation. Firstly, it shows that during the lifetime of Jesus, people were already familiar with the claim that Jesus is the son of God. This was no later addition to Christianity. It was always a core belief of the followers of Jesus, even during his lifetime. And also, it reveals that the Jews had failed to investigate this charge. They did not explore the evidence, the very substantial evidence which John himself has recorded, that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Now, they were aware of the miracles Jesus had done, they had investigated them, and they could not deny them. But the Jews refused to believe the claim which the evidence pointed to, just because they did not want to believe it, in spite of the evidence. Even today, no one with any sense of justice can afford to dismiss the claim that Jesus is the Son of God without first examining all the evidence in John's Gospel. That would be to repeat the appalling failures of the Jewish leaders. And in the second stage, when their own legal proceedings had failed to deliver the verdict they wanted, the Jewish leaders resorted to political intrigue and to wheeling and dealing with the Roman governor, Pilate. They used political blackmail when they said, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, when people resort to making veiled threats to the judge, it reveals that they have no genuine legal arguments to put the Jewish leaders had clearly given up on any pretense of doing what was right and fair and justice. And in the third and final stage, in their desperation to have Jesus convicted, the leaders of the nation of Israel made two public choices, 
which would ultimately bring out the destruction of the whole nation of Israel as an entity. Firstly, you'll notice that Pilate gave them the choice of releasing either Jesus or releasing Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was the leader of a rebellion, an insurrectionist, what today we would call a terrorist. And faced with that choice, the national leaders of Israel chose the terrorist. In doing so, they were setting the Jewish people on a path which would continually choose terrorism and rebellion. And nearly 40 years later, the whole nation of Israel would insanely rebel against Rome in the Jewish revolt. This led the Romans to destroy Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 and eventually to wipe Israel off the map. That mindless revolt was in many ways a result of their leaders having chosen Barabbas instead of Jesus Christ. The second choice the Jewish leaders made was when they said those fateful words, we have no king but Caesar. To understand just how horrific that statement was, you need to understand the promise which the nation of Israel had been waiting for for centuries. For 600 years, Israel had not been allowed to have a king. But the prophets sent by God had repeatedly promised that God would send them a king, a king who would be none less than God himself. Generation of Jews had waited patiently in the hope that God would fulfill his promise by sending the Messiah, the King of Israel. But the Jewish ruling elite at the time of Jesus were so intent on persuading Pilate to condemn Jesus Christ that they publicly renounced their hope in the coming Messiah. We have no king but Caesar. They were saying, we are no longer looking to God to be our king. We have given up on that idea. We acknowledge only Caesar as the greatest and only power on earth. The leaders of Israel chose to to abandon their long-held hope in the promise of God's Messiah rather than bow the knee to Jesus and to accept him as the Son of God. And so, in refusing to accept Jesus As the promised Son of God, the religious establishment of Israel destroyed their own sense of justice. They chose the path of terrorism, which would ultimately destroy their nation. And they abandoned their hope in the coming Messiah and in God as their promised King. They wanted to be masters of their own world, their own personal ambition for power and influence uh, meant more to them than their faith in God. They made a terrible choice. That's what happens when people decide in advance to refuse to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Sometimes people refuse to accept Jesus as the divine Son of God because of the implication for our own lives. Accepting Jesus as King means that we are no longer masters of our own destiny. And to some people, that is a step too far. Now, the Jewish leaders may have been more extreme than some people today, but nevertheless, some people today refuse to consider seriously the possibility that Jesus is the Son of God. Even when they are familiar with the evidence of Jesus, they still refuse to contemplate receiving him as king. If they do that, 
they are in danger of following the same road in their own lives as the nation of Israel did. Now, is there any hope for people who do that? Has God anything to say to people like the leaders of Israel who refuse to accept Jesus as the Son of God? In John's Gospel, John shows that God has a strategy for appealing to people even like that to come back to himself. Even after they wanted to crucify the Son of God. What we find in this passage is that God, through his Son, was making a dramatic appeal to the Jewish leaders. And this appeal may only have registered with them after Jesus had died and risen. But God was prepared to accept that. Christ was prepared to go through all that he did in an effort to get through to the people who were as hard as those leaders. A good number of them later did come to believe. God was showing them that even in the act of putting God's son to death, they were actually fulfilling a picture of salvation which lay at the very foundation of Israel as a nation. And that is why John's emphasis on the Passover is so important. We saw earlier that in these two chapters, chapters 18 and 19, John mentions the Passover four times. And at the climax of his description of the death of Jesus, John includes a quotation from the regulations for the original Passover. John saw that Jesus was protected from having a single bone of his body broken. And in this detail, John sees the controlling hand of God presenting his son to Israel and to the world as the true Passover lamb. Now, just in case you're not familiar with the annual Passover festival, let's remind ourselves of what Passover was celebrating. It brings us back to the very birth of Israel as a nation. In the book of Genesis, the family of Jacob, who was also called Israel, were literally the children of Israel. Jacob's family were welcomed into Egypt to escape a famine. There the family grew rapidly and became the basis of the nation of Israel. But they became a problem for the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh. On the one hand, Pharaoh saw them as a threat to Israel's security and to his personal position. On the other hand, the Israelites brought great economic benefit to Egypt. Pharaoh used the Israelites as slaves and made their life intolerable. He rejected the concept of one true God of Israel, the God that Israel said they believed in. Pharaoh refused to let them worship God. He was concerned about his power and his wealth, and if that meant sacrificing the Israelites and suppressing the concept of a God who created the universe, then Pharaoh was prepared to do that. The book of Exodus tells us how God came down and delivered Israel from the grip of Pharaoh. Even though God sent plagues on Egypt to bring Pharaoh to his senses, Pharaoh stubbornly acknowledged, refused to acknowledge God. He refused to release his grip on the Israelites. And even after nine devastating plagues which shattered uh, Egypt's economy, Pharaoh still refused to let Israel go. That was the moment when God stepped in to judge Egypt and to break Pharaoh's hold. The judgment 
was on Egypt and all the people living there, including the Israelites. The judgment was to bring the death of the firstborn to every family in the land. The destroying angel had license to pass through the whole land, bringing death to the firstborn of every home. God knew something as devastating as this was the only way to break Pharaoh's hold on Israel and to save them. But it brought the inevitable threat of the same judgment being applied to every family in Israel. So God had a plan to save the firstborn of Israelite families. God told each family to take a lamb, a perfect lamb. Then on the afternoon of the Passover, they were to kill the lamb and paint its blood on the outside doorframe in a rather strange pattern. Using the threshold step to hold the blood, they had to apply the blood above the top of the door and on the left and right-hand sides of the doorway. God said that as the destroying angel was approaching these homes, when God saw the blood, God would stretch himself over the door of every home where he saw the blood of the lamb. That's where the word pass over comes from or stretch over. In the darkness, God placed himself between the destroying angel and each Israelite family. The judgment did fall, but it fell on God himself as he stood in front of the door of every home which had applied the lamb's blood. That night, Pharaoh finally cracked and told Israel to leave. Israel celebrated that momentous evening annually. The Passover festival was a time when the whole nation remembered how they had been delivered from Egypt by God through the death of the Passover lamb. They remembered the strange pattern of the blood of the lamb and must have wondered wondered what it meant. John, in these chapters, stresses that the death of Jesus coincided exactly with when the Jewish leaders planned to celebrate the Passover. We read that the leaders would not enter Pilate's headquarters because they wanted to eat the Passover that evening without being unclean. Many other Jews, including the Lord and his disciples, had eaten the Passover meal the previous evening. But the leaders of Israel, for some reason which we won't go into, planned their celebration for one day later. So imagine the scene as they were gathered round the cross of the Lord Jesus. As they watched the Lord on the cross, their minds were also full of the Passover, which they were planning to celebrate very shortly. I wonder, did any of them recall the words of John the Baptist when he introduced Jesus to Israel? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And when they looked at the pattern of blood on the cross, did it strike them that they were seeing the original pattern of blood on the doors of Israelite homes in Egypt? Did the pattern now make sense? We sometimes sing, see from his head, his hands and his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. As the Jewish leaders looked at Jesus on the cross, they were looking at the precise pattern of Passover blood which they had been puzzling over for generations. 
Some of them may have seen the obvious message. We read of some of them who went home heartbroken. Jesus was the true Passover lamb whose death was necessary to save God's people Israel. The death of Christ was no tragic accident. It was not simply a miscarriage of justice. It was all planned by God. And in Christ, God was calling on the Jewish leaders of Israel to come back to him. God wanted them to realise that they were being delivered and they had the chance of being delivered from a power far greater than Pharaoh. Israel did not need to be saved from the political and military power of the Romans. They needed to be saved from a much greater power, their own sin, from the power of sin deep down in their hearts. They needed to be saved even from their own false religion and from a religious life which had become meaningless. And it required the death of the Son of God to make that possible. John saw that in these events, God was making a huge and generous appeal to Israel and to their leaders. To see that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The Son of God who was prepared to lay down his life to save them. Even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter announced to Israel that God was offering them and their leaders full forgiveness for what they had done to his son. Where would you ever get generosity and love like that? As our famous hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's bow our heads in prayer and bring our time to a close. Our Heavenly Father, we know that in this time of crisis in our world that you never let anything happen which is not according to your will and with your permission. We know that even in the darkest days you can bring hope and salvation. And so as we listen to your word, as we hear how the Lord Jesus himself became a victim of intense suffering, we know that he was doing this firstly to show that he is with people in their suffering. We know that he understands our fears and our uh, suffering at times like this, even our isolation. But we've also seen how that in his death, he is giving his life to save us, to save us from a power greater even than the power of a virus, but the power of sin in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. We pray that as we see the Lord Jesus giving himself for us, we might recognise in him our true king, that we would accept him as king of our lives. How much better to have him ruling our lives than our own sinful selves. So we pray that we would take your word to heart and open our hearts more to you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.